There's just kind of one, one uh, thing I'd like to get out of the way before we dive into the word. And that is just to acknowledge that across the room at the moment, there are probably people from all sorts of different income backgrounds. There will be pensioners who are getting by on a state pension. There might be people living on benefits. There might be people earning minimum wage. And there might be people who consider themselves actually to be in a good job, earning plenty of money and well off. Um, and that's the case has always been through the Bible. There are rich people and there are poor people. Um, and at the start, when I started to prepare this message, there were two stories that leapt out the Bible at me. The first one was the story of the rich young man, the guy who said, do you know what, I pretty much keep all the Ten Commandments, I'm a good Christian. Um, And he went up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus basically looked at him and said, well, in your case, you need to sell all your possessions, give away all your riches to the poor, and then you will inherit the kingdom of God. And he went away sad because he was a rich man and he didn't really want to part with his riches. And the second story that came to me was the one of the the widow who had two small coins. It's all she had in the world. And Jesus said about, he watched first the rich Pharisees going into the temple with their riches and their offerings and giving their lots of gold. And then he watched the the, the widow with her two small coins and he watched her put all that she had into the offering basket. And he rebuked the widow and said, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. You should keep some of what you've got because you're only a poor woman. And how are you going to buy your shopping for next week? What are you going to do? What are you going to live on? No, you're a poor person. Therefore, you should keep some of what you've got back from the offering. Thank you. No, he didn't. What he did, he commended to his disciples. He commended the widow for giving all that she had. He didn't say, no, you foolish woman. What are you going to live on? He commended her because she gave all that she had. And the story of the rich young man... Give all that you have, Take all, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor. And the story of the widow, commended for giving all that she had. To me, that says, do you know what? Whether we're rich or whether we're poor, the message is the same. The message is all we have comes from God. And we should all be generous and cheerful in what we give. And we should all treat our riches, ourselves as rich in his kingdom and in his sight. In God's eyes, there's no difference between rich or poor. So at the outset, I'd like for us all to agree that whether we think of ourselves as rich or poor, we're actually all in this together and we can all learn exactly the same lessons. So let's turn to the Bible. If we can get to Luke chapter 12, please. This is during Jesus' ministry when he was telling lots of parables to lots and lots of people. Um, And one of them went like this. He said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. The man thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops. So he said to himself, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I shall say to myself, I have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. It's interesting, as I was reading this the first time round, eat, drink and be merry, I was actually quite surprised to find that that actually came from the Bible. I had a feeling it might be Shakespeare or something daft like that, but it's there in the Bible, eat, drink and be merry. But anyway, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body and what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. 
Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labour or spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? So do not set your heart on what you will eat and drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, God in the ordinary, how to spend, save and give wisely. Let's start with saving, because to be honest, we all know spending money is a lot more fun than saving it. So we'll get the saving bit done in the beginning. It's tempting to uh, read this parable and think that actually Jesus was saying saving money is a complete waste of time. Uh, The man in the parable, he was rich, he had an abundance of crops, he built big barns and he thought you were going to have a nice, long, happy retirement. Eat, drink, be merry. And yet the next day he was to drop down dead and God called him a fool. Let me tell you a little bit about a man called John D. Rockefeller. The the youngsters in the room will probably think that Bill Gates is the richest man in the world or has been for most of his time. Currently estimated to be worth something like $79 billion. Um, He pales into insignificance compared to the great John D. Rockefeller. Mr. Rockefeller pretty much started and owned 90% of the US oil industry at its peak in the 1800s through into the 1900s. In today's terms, Mr. Rockefeller is estimated, if you scale it up to today's money, would be worth something in the region of $250 billion, making Bill Gates look puny. Mr. Rockefeller died in the year 1937, and at the time he died... Somebody went up to one of the executors or the people who were handling his finances and said, goodness me, Mr. Rockefeller's died. How much has he left? The answer was, all of it. It doesn't matter how much you've got, how much you earn, how much you put in the bank, whether you're rich, poor or whatever, on the day you die, what you're going to leave is all of it. So what is the point of accumulating barns and storerooms full of wealth? Apart from something to leave to other people, it's pretty much pointless. 1 Timothy verse 7 says, We brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we should be content with that. So it's tempting to think that the message here is that saving is absolutely pointless. And particularly in today's world when interest rates are forecast to go negative, which will be interesting, um, you can, it's tempting to agree that saving is a complete waste of time. However, I think it's important to recognise that Jesus' warning here isn't about just saving money. Jesus' warning here was about a rich, young ma- a rich man who had stockpiled excessive wealth. Another story we can read in John verse 12, sorry, John chapter 12, is a story I'm sure you've all heard of, was that um, when Jesus went to visit Mary and she took out an expensive jar of perfume that she'd had saved up somewhere and she broke the jar of perfume over Jesus' feet. Where did that jar of perfume come from? Now, okay, maybe she didn't have it saved up in an ISA with the Nationwide or or the Barclays Bank or whoever, but actually this perfume, I'm going to guess, was part of her treasure. This perfume that she'd had stored somewhere in the house was part of maybe her rainy day fund. Maybe that was her, her riches. Maybe that was her wealth. It was described as expensive. 
on this particular day when Jesus came to visit, she went to where she had her savings, to where she had that expensive jar of perfume, and she broke it over his feet. She took from her savings and she spent it in worship to Jesus. There were those who said to her she should have sold this expensive perfume and given the money to the poor. Well, then she would have had nothing with which to worship Jesus when he came. She would have had nothing to wash his feet with. And that would have happened if she'd have given it away and she'd have given the money to the poor. That would have probably happened weeks or months previously. But actually, no, Mary had chosen to save this jar of perfume, probably in the knowledge that at some point she would either need the money she could get from saving it or she would actually use the perfume in worship for Jesus. So I'm going to argue here that actually saving can be good. Saving for a purpose is good saving. Saving for a purpose makes sense. Saving for things like your car is about to die, or the roof might blow off your house, or your children want to get married, or you want to buy a house, or even if you, don't, if you want to go on holiday. If you don't save up for these things, then where are you going to turn when the un- unfortunate things happen? Proverbs 21 verse 20 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but the fool gulps theirs down. So if you gulp down all the money you earn, then you have nothing to fall back on when your children want to get married or you want to buy a house or the roof falls off your house or something like that. So I'm going to say saving actually is a smart move. Storing up excessive wealth, Jesus has clearly warned us against that. But saving for a purpose and saving for a reason is a smart move. And the best reason of all to save is just like Mary's jar of expensive perfume is so that you can give it away. Save to give. So that when a need arises, for example, a couple of weeks ago we had a a special offering to help feed the starving in Burundi. When a need arises, you're not thinking, oh my goodness, what have I got left at the end of the month this month? And giving a small amount based on on how your month has gone. But if you've got money saved up in the bank, if you've got um, some, some riches there, then instead of scratching around from this month's leftovers, you can look at what you've got saved and then give generously. So I'm going to encourage you today, it's worth making an effort to save. Because I can promise you there will be more offerings, there will be more opportunities to give. So for example, like the East plant, or wherever, wherever we decide to plant next, or whatever, um, whenever Burundi runs out of food again, there will be more opportunities to give. So it would be smart to save in advance of those things. So how much you should, 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 it, should we all save? I'm going to say if you're, giving, uh, if you're saving nothing at all, then take small steps. Start saving something. If you save nothing this month, save £5, save £10, save £20 next month. And if you manage to get to the end of the month without the, the world caving on in you, then next month go again. Try a little bit more and see if God upholds you as you save. There's a rule that a lot of people live by. You won't find it in the Bible, so I'm not going to say that this is something we say is a, is a kind of a strict thing, but some people live on the 80-10-10 rule. Live on 80%, save 10%, and give 10%. Again, I'm not going to say that's something we should all be doing, but if you're looking for somewhere to kind of put a, a, a line in the ground, then that would be an excellent thing to aim for. If you think, my goodness, I'm miles and miles from that, I couldn't possibly achieve that, then again, I would say to you, take small steps. Start small, gradually increase, gradually get bigger. So, saving, a smart move, because there will be opportunities to give. Spending, here we go, this gets a bit more exciting, doesn't it? We all like spending money. Why is it important that we look at a godly attitude to spending? I think the important thing here is, the way our society works is that quite often, it's our spending that determines how much we save and how much we give. 
And I think that's not a smart way of doing things. The smart way of doing things would be to determine how much we give, how much we save, and allow what's left to determine our spending. You've probably heard the phrase that the British are a nation of shopkeepers. Um, I was quite surprised. I went and had a look to see who coined this phrase, something you might have heard. I thought it was probably something that happened in Margaret Thatcher's era or something like that. But actually, someone in the first meeting knew to whom this phrase was attributed. So is there a smart addict in the room who knows who said that the British are a nation of shopkeepers? Napoleon. Napoleon. You're a very educated bunch in the room today. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Napoleon looked at the British and said, we are a nation obsessed with retail. And it's like, if he said that hundreds of years ago, how much more would, would that phrase be true for us today? We are, as a nation, retail crazy. Um, I don't mind a bit of shopping, I have to say. Um, but if you ever go to a retail park or something in the couple of weeks before Christmas and again the couple of weeks after Christmas, oh my goodness, it's crazy. We are obsessed the millions and millions of people who just love to go and shop and spend and buy stuff and buy better stuff, buy cheaper stuff, buy more expensive than someone else's stuff. It's just get stuff, loads and loads of stuff. We are obsessed with shopping. 1 Timothy 6. We read 1 Timothy 7 earlier on, but if we just go back a little bit to 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, endurance, and gentleness. The key words there for me are godliness with contentment is great gain. I think one of the main reasons why we are so obsessed with retail and with shopping and buying stuff is purely because we have not learned to be content with, the, with, with what we have and with where we are. Um, I have a recipe for contentment, and it's a, it, to coin it very harshly, it's um, have poor friends. I know that sounds a little bit harsh, but I think one of the reasons we're, we're often not content is because we're always striving to be where other people are. Um, working in finance, as I do, one of the, it's sometimes a joy and sometimes not, is actually you get to understand what everybody else earns because you're always the person doing the payroll. Um, and in one of my previous employments, I, um, my boss was the managing director of the company I worked for. <clears throat> and in my view, he was quite a rich man. He earned roughly double what I earned, which, as I say, made him comparatively a rich man. And he was a very nice chap, and he had a lovely family and all the rest of it, drove a nice car, had nice holidays. But it was interesting, every time I spoke to him, whenever the subject of money came up, I could tell he was never really happy. And the reason he was never happy is because, actually, he, was, he lived just outside Bath. He was quite well-connected in, well in the world of rugby. Andy Robinson, who was one of the English rugby coaches, was a good friend of his. He had other friends who had started their own business and made millions when they sold that business. And his problem was he was knocking around with people who all had considerably more money than he had. And consequently, even though I thought he was rich, he was never particularly happy. So my advice is, actually, if you have lots of friends who make you envious of, of where they are and what they have, then maybe it's not such a smart idea to spend all your time with them. 
Maybe it's not such a smart idea to spend all your, all your evenings watching programmes like Grand Designs or Millionaire's Holidays or buying OK Magazine and just obsessing yourself with the lives of the rich and famous. It's just going to instil discontentment within you. We need to learn to be content and that will influence our spending habits. I was very struck the other week when Colin was speaking to us about life in the spirit. He read Galatians 5, which says this, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. Okay, these are what we would consider the bottom rung of sins that we would probably not want to get involved in. And the next one listed, jealousy. It goes on, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, drunkenness, orgies, and envy. In that big list of, of sins that we would say, yeah, these are, these are the black ones, you know, we don't want to go there. They're, they're really the bottom of the rung. Jealousy and envy are in there. And it was in the Ten Commandments when God listed the ten things for the people of Israel. These are the things that are going to set the standard. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his BMW or his conservatory or his fancy new preaching shoes or his bank balance or his final salary pension scheme or anything that is actually your neighbor's and not yours. It's theirs, not yours. Get over it. I think is what God is trying to say. And I think there are two reasons why God takes such a dim view of us being jealous of other people and being envious of their stuff. Number one, it's just a waste of effort. Envy and jealousy will get you nowhere. It just sows discontentment. And secondly, and more importantly, I think, an envious lifestyle, one that is always jealous of other people, basically shows a lack of satisfaction with God's provision for your life. If you look at the Bible through and through, There is always rich and they're always poor. And I think that's how it's always going to be. I don't think God ever teaches us that there's going to be a utopia where everybody is the same, where everybody is equal. And that's just something we have to learn to live with. It's something we have to understand that God will bless people like this and he will bless others like that. And we need to be learned to live to be content with his provision for us. So the same question as before, how much should we spend? And obviously the answer is easy because we said 10, 10, sorry, 10, 10, 80, which means 80% you can spend. Well, I'm not going to say it quite as black and white as that. I don't think it should be quite that way. I think um, the practical advice here is that we should all learn to live within our means. And that's going to mean different things to different people. But at the end of the day, I think what that means is if you get to the end of the month and there's money left over, well done. You've lived within your means. Unless, of course, you put a 500 quid debt on your credit card, in which case you didn't live within your means. I think it's time each one of us probably looked at our spending, was honest with ourselves and say, am I actually living within my means or am I just stretching things bit by bit, month by month? So if every month you get to, if every month you get to the end and you find money left over, then well done, you're living within your means. But if actually all you're doing is piling up debt, then you're probably not. And speaking of debt, I think it's hard to talk about spending without talking about debt. There's a beautiful rule in Proverbs, first, uh, yeah, Proverbs 22. There's just a small verse in there that says, The rich will rule over the poor, and the borrower will be the slave to the lender. 
Now, I just think that's a really interesting phrase that we can bear in mind. The borrower is a slave to a lender. I'm not saying that we should never borrow money. I personally have borrowed money to buy houses, to buy cars, think things like that. But I think the, the phrase borrower should, is, is a slave to a lender is just one to bear in mind. Next time you see a buy now, pay later offer, I think we should interpret that as buy now, become a slave to DFS or Argos or whoever it is, whatever it is we're tempted to buy now, pay later for. As I say, not all schemes for enabling you to buy things are going to cripple you and are going to be wrong in that sense. But 21st century money is just designed to make things easier for you to buy. They're not designed to make them cheaper for you. Industry doesn't work that way. There is no company on this earth that is trying to make your life cheaper and less expensive. The, the object of a capitalist society is to take as much money from you as, as, as it can. So next time you see a buy now, pay later, or small deposit, only this much per month, that what they're trying to do is get you hooked in so they can take more money from you. As I say, I don't want to say that we should never entertain such schemes, but Proverbs 22 is very, very true. The borrower will become the slave to the lender. So my advice is that we should all be prepared to review our spending. If you're honestly, consistently living within your means, then fantastic, well done. But if you're not, then I think it's time to do something about it. Common advice would be drop a brand, drop a TV package, get an iPhone 5 instead of an iPhone 6. Whatever it is, be honest with yourself about what you need to spend. The goal here is not that we become penny pinchers or misers. That's not, I don't think, where any of us is really suggesting we should go. But the goal here is that actually our spending is dictated by our giving and our saving and not the other way around. So let's get into giving. That's the really good part. If we go back to Luke 12, just to recap what was said there, in verse 32, it says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is a phrase that actually I've loved for years and years. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And top job on finding the song. Great song by Iona. By Iona. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What this phrase is saying is that you can tell what's important to people by where they spend their money. When I was a teenager, I spent most of my money on buying records. Um, yeah, records, vinyl, that proves how old I am. I was actually one of the first people I knew to buy a CD player, which proves again how old I am. Um, <clears throat> for some people, it's clothes and shoes, and for others of us, that's not quite so important. And I think what God's saying in this message is where your treasure is, there your heart will be, is he's looking to see what we do with our money to understand where our hearts are. God is looking to see if we're prepared to give our money to him as a marker in the sand that actually he has our hearts as well. The wisdom in, this, uh, in Luke chapter 12 is clear. It says, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I find that pretty much every penny I spend on this earth will deteriorate. If I buy shoes, they will wear out. If I buy a washing machine, it will break down soon enough. If I buy a car, it's going to need servicing, tires, exhausts, all those things, and eventually it will fall apart and I need to replace it with another one. If I go to Curry's and buy myself a new smartphone, pretty much by the time I've got home, it's probably the old model and it's obsolete and I need a new one. 
If I spend my money on a holiday, then it provides me with some lovely memories. But I have to say, every holiday I go on is never long enough, and ultimately the memories fade. The smart minds in here are thinking, aha, property. Property appreciates, doesn't it? Well, it kind of does. But if we're honest, if you buy a house, you've got to insure it. You've got to pay council tax. You've got to pay gas, electric. You're going to have to put new carpets down, blah, 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 blah. And just the very act of owning a house costs you money in the long run. And actually, your house will only appreciate at the same rate as anyone else's. So if you need somewhere to live, then that money is lost to you anyway. And the ultimate ultimate argument here is actually when you go, just like John D. Rockefeller, you still can't take it with you. Everything we spend here on this earth is lost to us in the end the bible says provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out treasure in heaven that will never fail when no thief comes near and no moth destroys what we give to god when we give to his kingdom and into his purposes that is stored up as treasure for us to enjoy in heaven for all eternity so the same question again how much is it 80 10 10 is this the 10 that we have to give well before we come to the amount I think one of the first priorities is we should give first. Once you've got your finances organized, once you know where your money is, where you've got your spending under control, you're you're doing a little bit of saving, I think we should all be in a place where we can confidently give first. I'll be brutally honest here and say this is something that I was probably a little bit foolish about for a number of years. I've... As I'll explain in a minute, I was brought up to give my 10%. I grew up in a Pentecostal church where 10% was the message, and I was brought up to do that. But actually, for a number of years, on the day I got paid, I would see the money arrive in my bank account, and I would faithfully say, okay, this much then is going to be my offering into the church. But then I would keep it until the end of the month. Just in case something really went horribly wrong, or or hadn't calculated it right, or an unexpected bill came in. And actually, for a number of years, that's kind of how I operated. I kind of ticked the box that said, give first, because I actually separated that and said, this is what I'm going to give. But I didn't actually give it. And it was almost as if I was afraid that God wouldn't be faithful enough through the rest of the month. Now, I'm happy to say that I've sorted that out um, quite a few years ago. And now, the, the, the way I operate is when I, on the day I get paid, I look how much I've been paid, and I work out how much I'm going to give, and it gets given. It's the first thing I do. In Corinthians, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem. And he wrote to them in advance of a visit. And he said, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And this was smart advice from Paul. He didn't just write and say, oh, by the way, there's going to be a collection. So just like when I come, there's going to be a collection. Because Paul knows that probably if he gave them advance warning, then the people in Corinth would probably have done nothing about it. And by the time he arrived, they'd have, I don't know, spent it on buying a new iPad or a TV or McDonald's or whatever it is they would have spent it on. No, Paul said to them, on the first day of the week, put something aside so that when he comes, it's like, no, I've got my offering. I've got my gift here. It's ready to give. We should try and give first. And how much should we give? The the verse we read there says, each of you should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So again, the message here is clear. As, As you prosper, so you should give. The rich should give more than the poor, proportionately. Interestingly, if you've ever uh, spoken to anybody who works in the charitable sector, who's used to collecting money, actually they will tell you that the opposite is true. It tends to be that the rich give proportionately less than the poor. My mum goes to another church in town and one of her 
jobs in the past was to deliver the little Christian aid envelopes all around town. <clears throat> and she always said to me, do you know what? There are certain areas of town they don't bother with because they're the rich areas. And actually, they always found that in those rich areas, they got next to nothing come back. But actually, when they distributed the envelopes to the poorer areas of town, they would find a rich harvest came back. And I've just been pondering this. Why is it that the rich seem less willing to part with their money than the poor? And I think it's worth exploring this, lest we ever fall into any of these traps. The rich attempted to say, I earned it. Granting of wealth sometimes brings a great sense of entitlement. They'll say to you, I worked hard for it. I deserve it. And the truth is, do you really deserve it? Or are we just fortunate to live in an economy that values certain gifts and certain skills over others? Lest we ever fall into this trap of thinking, I earned it. I worked hard for it. I deserve it. Ask yourself, who gave you the skills that you use to do your job? You might say, I studied hard for, my, for this. Well, I'm going to ask you, who gave you your education? Who gave you a capable brain? You might say, I worked really hard for this. I worked hard when other people just sat around and did nothing. I climbed my way up the ladder when other people couldn't be bothered. To which I would say, who actually just ordained that you be born into 20th century Britain, into an economic society that that values your skill set? Take your brains, take your hard work, take all your ambition and start again in Lesotho or Burundi or one of those countries and then see how rich you become. The message is everything we have, whether we feel we've earned it, everything we have is already a gift from God. We could learn a lot here from um, King Nebuchadnezzar in the the book of Daniel. Um, He tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar who was a very rich and very powerful king and no doubt he thought he'd earned it. He went out one day and he looked over his kingdom and he said, what a wonderful kingdom I have. What a, what a great king I am. How powerful I am. Look at all my riches. And within minutes, God had stripped him of his sanity, of his clothes, and he spent seven years eating grass like an ox. Let's beware our sense of entitlement to the riches we have. So back to the question, how much should we give? <coughs> 2 Corinthians 9 says this, Whoever sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever." Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched so sorry you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So the message here is that God is looking for cheerful and generous givers not necessarily for a fixed percentage of your income. I've heard some people say that actually when you come to give, if you get your calculator out and you get your spreadsheets out, well, that's not very cheerful and generous, is it? And I'm going to nail my colours to the mast here as an accountant and say, I wholeheartedly disagree. All the cheerful and generous things I've ever done with my money have come from me sitting down and working out how much I can afford, whether it be taking my family on holiday, buying gifts for my wife or Christmas presents for my children. I will sit down and work out what I can, what I can afford, and then that enables me to be cheerful and generous as I go and spend that money. And it's exactly the same with our giving. I think 
if we're on top of our finances, we know how much we have, we know how much we earn, we know how much we have previously saved. There's nothing wrong with sitting down and getting it out your calculator. And sometimes you might look at what you've saved and say, I'm going to give absolutely all of it because God has blessed me such and I feel he's prompting me to do so. Other times you might say, on this occasion, I'll give 10% of it or 50% of it or whatever it is. So I'm a big fan of the calculator and the spreadsheet in enabling us to clarify that we can be cheerful and we can be generous. If we don't do any planning, then we might accidentally fall into the trap of being too stingy with our giving. Or we might accidentally find we've pushed ourselves into debt, as we talked about earlier on. One question I know that might be coming up is to tithe or not to tithe. Now, tithing means basically giving 10%. Uh, I was actually brought up on tithing. I went to a Pentecostal church from the day I was born. And so it was instilled in me that 10% is what you give. And actually, I'm not at all sorry that that was instilled into me at an early age. I actually tithe my pocket money. I tithe my paper round. I tithe my first Saturday job. And when I actually started work in a proper job, I also tithe that. And the good thing about that is it's never been difficult for me to consider a big chunk of my money is not mine. It's God's. So if you're a tither here, if you've been brought up on that and that's, that's your, your starting point, then well done for taking a serious and a sensible approach to your giving. But actually, we don't believe that tithing is God's final plan for his church. We know that Jesus came and fulfilled the law and then raised the bar. Okay, you know, so in the verse we read earlier, earlier in, from the Old Testament it said you should not covet your neighbor's wife. When Jesus came and fulfilled the law, he lived a perfect life, and then he raised the bar so that we can live under grace. Not coveting your wife became, don't even so much look at your neighbor's wife, or you've committed adultery with her. What Jesus did was fulfill the law and then raise the bar. And I think it's exactly the same with our giving. The law said you should give 10%. Jesus came and basically obliterated the law, but now we live under grace. Surely our giving should be 10% and above, rather than less than. I'm not saying that everybody should give 10%. That's not what we're saying. We are under grace and we are all in different circumstances. However, if you're looking for somewhere to start and somewhere to build on, I think 10% is not a bad benchmark to start on. What we're really aiming for is cheerful, generous giving. Excuse me. It's very quiet in here. Good, good. The first bunch were a lot noisier, has to be said. But anyway, maybe that's just me. Let me tell you a story um, about cheerful and generous giving. A few years ago, we had a visitor to this church. His name was Ben Davis. He was one of the leaders of Bracknell Family Church, or whatever they're called. Lovely chap, uh, Welsh fella, quite fiery. And he told a beautiful story. And I think the main reason I remember this story is because he kind of giggled like a schoolgirl almost the whole way through it. And this says a lot about his attitude to giving. He, the church in Bracknell is actually quite involved with the local community. Um, and on one particular day, Ben had gone out to meet with the headmistress of a special needs school. And he just wanted to get to know her, understand what it is the school is doing, see if there's anything the church could do to partner in some of their activities, that sort of thing. And he asked her, well, so what's going on? What's, what's on your agenda at the moment? He said, you know what I'd really like? There's this special uh, playground for the children. It's a playground designed for special needs kids. I, I know nothing about it, but it was this particular type of playground that would have been really good for the kids in this school. And Ben said to her, oh, really? How much would that cost? And she said, £37,000. And without a heart, missing a heartbeat, Ben said, oh, we'll do that for you. 
And it's fantastic because then he said, oh, you wouldn't believe it. I had to go back to the church and say, oh, by the way, we need £37,000. Is that okay? And it was okay because that was a church that was committed to cheerful and generous giving. And you know what? It's no surprise to me that if you were to go to the Bracknell Family Church, or whatever they're called, sorry, they actually operate out of a multi-million pound facility. It's right in the heart of town. It's well known there. They've got facilities that are used. Do you know what? This is a church that has grasped how to give cheerfully and generously. I think it's true that in this church we do have many, many cheerful and generous givers. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing half the things we're doing both here in the furniture project in Burundi. I think last year our income was something like half a million pounds if you take in donated furniture and those sorts of things, which is a great, a great amount of money. Um, as a trustee, I, I have to tell you that as quickly as it comes in, the elders will have great schemes for spending it. <laughs> Absolutely. Hallelujah. There is so much more that could be done if we had resources. So there are cheerful and generous givers in this place. I know there are. I have to say, just as a quick aside, as a trustee, no idea how much anybody gives. Okay, I'm not privy to that information, so I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. We have cheerful and generous givers in this place, but are we overflowing with an abundance of cash that enables us to do all the things we would like to do? In all honesty, probably not. So my message here really is... Could we take a look at what we give? Could we look at um, our attitude to giving? Is it cheerful? Is it generous? Are we looking to grow in our generosity? You could say to me, Mark, I would love to give more, but every month I get to the end of the month and I, I, I just, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't think I'm going to have anything left over. My advice would be exactly the same as we said with spending. Take small steps. If, you get, if you're a faithful 10% giver, then why not aim for 11 next year? Gradually work your way to that. If you're already at 11, why not aim for 12% and maybe a bit more the year after? I wouldn't be the first person to stand on this stage. If I was the first, I wouldn't have done it. But since Colin mentioned it a few months ago, I don't want to be the first person to mention the 100 Club. Um, I'm, I'm led to believe that there is a, quite a few people who kind of give a faithful £100 every month. Now, £100 is actually quite a decent sum of money. It's not a small sum of money, and we could say that for many people, £100 is cheerful and is generous. But actually, if you're one of those people earning a reasonable salary and you're giving £100 a month, then, well, it's not 10%, is it? And honestly, is it cheerful? Is it generous? If you were to share your giving with your neighbours, would they say to you, how much? Or would you say, or would they say, well, actually, yeah, we give similar amounts to Oxfam or children in need or whatever it is. My advice is small steps. Take small steps. Review your spending so that you can have more opportunity to give. And take small steps. If you're giving £100 now, try giving 110 next month and see if God blesses you. Not necessarily with riches, but with sufficient. Our aim is to grow in generosity. Because the message of the verse we read right at the beginning is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I was talking to somebody after the first meeting and they reminded me of what I should have said in the first meeting. What you're giving does reflect where your heart is. But actually, if you give, I feel sure that your heart will also follow. The verse is actually that way around. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Yes, where we place our treasure is an indication of where our heart is. But if we're prepared to put more and more treasure into God's kingdom, I feel sure that our hearts will follow. And finally, just before I close, I do want to just open the door up and say, look, 
if you're, you feel like, yes, I'd love to give, I'd love to save, but you know what? My finances are a mess. I don't know up from down. I don't know whether I've got money left or not. It's just a complete mess. Then there is help available in this building. There are some people who have been trained in debt counselling and to help you manage your money. If we're sick, we're quite good at going to the doctor to see if we can get some help and get ourselves fixed. But actually, with our money, we're much more reluctant to confess that we've made a mess of it and we don't know what we're doing. I would say if your finances are in a mess, then come and talk to me or one of the elders and we'll try and put you in touch with someone who can help get you sorted out. Because getting your finances sorting out, A, it's one less thing to lose sleep about overnight. And B, it's a way of unlocking blessing for the kingdom of God. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can we stand and pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you again that you are our great provider. And Lord, we thank you that you are not after our money, Lord. Lord, it's not your, your, your desire that we should just ritualistically just, oh, okay, have some more money. But Lord, you want our hearts. And we just pray that you would allow our hearts to be softened to the work of your spirit so that you would just have all of us, Lord. And that includes our finances. Lord, we pray that we would increasingly become a people who are cheerful and generous in our giving. Lord, not not out of compulsion, not out of ritual, but Lord, out of love for a saviour who has blessed us so much. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing in this place and we long to see more. Lord, we long to see your kingdom extended and your name glorified. And we just pray that you would help us to partner with you by giving generously and cheerfully into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful love for us. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we just love you today and say, would you be glorified in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.